Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Before we get started, here's a quick note from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce all of you to Sam Kovar and his company, Tiatoa. Tiatoa is an acronym for take in everything, take on anything. And after participating in the Nexus Foundations course, Sam got hooked on smart buildings and he wants to Tiatoa anything our industry can throw at him. As an outsider, he sees a future where this industry can move forward faster with better communications. He wants to be an independent creative resource for helping you guys the Nexus community connect to their customers and grow your audiences. He's got 15 plus years of experience in strategic communications, creative consulting, technical execution for video, animation, and photography. So connect with Sam using the link in the show notes and learn more. This episode is a conversation with Tara Whitson of DB Engineering and formerly leader of Microsoft Smart Buildings program while he was at CBRE. This is the story of one of the most successful and famous smart buildings programs on the planet, straight from the mouth of one of the key players. Before we jump into that conversation, I wanted to make sure you all know about our new Thought Leader program. Once a month, I'll be co-writing a piece with one of our sponsors. We'll dive deep and make it non-salesy and educational and tell stories that are outside my core expertise. So check the link in the show notes to learn more. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast with Tara Whitson. Hello, Tara. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself? Good day, James. Uh, my name Terrell Whitson. Uh, I'm currently director of Smart Building Solutions with uh, DB Engineering here, based in Redmond, Washington, uh, in the lovely Pacific Northwest. Really, uh, you know, winding background and uh, of arriving to Smart Buildings and uh, you know ups and downs and hills and valleys and you know, I think we'll unpack that as we go. Absolutely. Let's start at the beginning of your career. I know you started out in the Navy. Can you take us through from the Navy up until DB Engineering? What were your different stops along the way? Yeah, happy to. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, one of those journeys that, you know, most people tell their life story or whatever you go through and, you know, pick apart as that adventure unfolds. And I had the opportunity, the, the joy of, uh, being a, maybe a smart kid, but with a poor work ethic and uh, not enough money to really consider college out of high school. And so the Navy opened an opportunity for me, had a fascination with nuclear power. And uh, that was the hook that I got into. Um, as, at the time I was, you know, the, the early nineties and, and really fascinated with computers. And, you know, and I was a, I was a whiz kid on my Commodore 64 and getting in there and doing some coding and uh but at the time i remember being very concretely wanting to do what i termed real engineering and hmm. uh, it nuclear power seemed like that was the that, that was the big draw uh, you know i wanted to go be scotty from the the enterprise and that idea w pulled me in and so uh leaned in enlisted in the navy in uh, 1990 and uh, went through the nuclear power program which gives you just a whole dose of engineering um, in a compact short run of about a year and a half to two years of practical and theoretical knowledge, uh, doses of physics and reactor principles and chemistry and materials, kind of the whole gamut really thrown at you. Um, it's a pressure cooker. A lot of people 
don't make it through, it's about a 50% failure rate. Um, but getting through it and getting into uh, the ultimately into the submarine force was a uh, was, you know really cool journey. And um, as it pulled me in, I embraced a lot of the you know the heavy mechanical work, but also the the theoretical of why are we doing this? How does it come together? I think one of the things that I always take away that I bring for I brought forward with that time was uh, integrated plant operations. They'd call it IPO, and it was something that they drilled into your head all, all the time. And how do these things all come together? Hmm. Don't just focus on oh I'm a mechanic and I focus on these things, or I'm an electrician and I worry about power generation or or sensors and data. Ultimately, and the smart building journey. It's one of those things that I've, I've harkened back to all the time is that integrated functions of all of the collective whole and understanding the mission. What are you doing? Where are you trying to be? Where are you going with it? Um, so great engineering um, kind of breeding ground to, to, to grow and learn. I spent most of the 90s pretty much in the Navy, um, deployed on a TAC submarine, USS Indianapolis, throughout the Western Pacific. Um, best of times, the worst of times. Uh, Great times with friends and adventures overseas, and also hard, hard working times. Lots of extended hours and and mm-hmm. some hard working conditions. So you take it all in, and but it was a great opportunity. Um, and again, kind of for a poor kid coming out of Los Angeles, for me it was a it was a, a way to to open a door and start to to provide a stepping stone to go up for college. Uh, got out in 1999, took a road trip cross country. Uh, traveling uh, out of my truck and, and learning the country a little bit. And ultimately, after about six months of uh, backpacking, camping uh, across country, decided to settle in the uh, Seattle area um, with some extended family, came up here um, and was looking to restart, figure out how to how to put down my roots, wound up uh, getting connected with a um, job provider, military uh, veteran job, uh, uh, headhunter provider Orion, who eventually got me placed in and interviewed with the the Microsoft campus. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, Johnson Controls was the facility management provider there, and so interviewed in. Um, strangely enough, with another ex Nuke, um, um, and Nukes that's their our nickname, but it, for our, for those that went through the nuclear power service and. Uh, he was. He had uh, rightly and wrongly had uh, had foretold that uh, ex nukes coming out would be the best building operators, um, and he was determined to prove it to some of his traditional uh, trade school and real estate corporate real estate uh, leadership. Uh, good and bad, because he was a little bit uh, a little bit arrogant in his statement, and I had to bear some of that. But it was also an opportunity to to jump in and get hired in for. Uh, on Microsoft right in a very cool time in the sense it was uh, the lead up to Y2K. Um, and it was uh, quite fascinating to, to jump into that level of activi- activity at, and where that was going and all of the, the, the churn that Y2K was creating in, at the end of 1999, especially for somebody conscious, you know, like Microsoft, where they were very very visible and did not want to have any kind of system service interruptions of any kind. So a lot of processes going on with that of system checks and uh, verifications and, uh, you know, double sign off on every system that would it roll over? Would it not roll over? Was there question? 
Where were the hit lists? Where were they? All the operational postures that we had to take into consideration. So fun times. It was a great time to, to join the campus, but I was a, I was coming in really as an HVAC technician. Um, my secondary skill set when I was in the Navy was as a, a centrifugal chiller uh, mechanic. Mm. And so I had gone through uh, York Teardown School, uh, the Marine Pack, 150 ton York chillers, had gone through Teardown School, had done all levels of maintenance and um, had come up with the really with the the birth of the EPA program and the Montreal protocols when those were first enacted and we were pivoting from really no controls in, in refrigerant and what we were doing as far as injecting it in the atmosphere and then to full controls or much better mm. certainly at the time. So um, that chiller plant um, or, and chiller skill set was really kind of what brought me in the door with the HVC department and the, under the FM group with, with Microsoft and Johnson Controls. And um, it, it led to, you know, you know, central plant operations. And then so really cut my teeth in those first couple of years on operating, working within the mechanical systems, within the central plant systems. And really on Microsoft's campus at the time, it was 8 million square feet, but it had multiple clusters of, of large connected chiller plant systems with distributed airside systems within the corporate real estate space there that they had okay. and a lot of a lot of lab infrastructure too that was also an interesting facet coming on to it was taking in how they viewed critical operations you know in my past critical operations meant uh things that were submarine safe or would flood the ship or uh, create a casualty that you know could cost your life or mm-hmm it to Microsoft and it was I, I remember one lab manager quoted to me at the time he you know said if this lab goes down it might be a, a million dollars a minute like okay that's a it's a little bit of a of a focal point to to bring to mind when when responding oh, yeah. to operations there so um it was it was it was great it was a good time and I learned a ton in those first few years um but I would say kind of those early aughts one of the things I was readily fascinated with right away was uh controls and automation um okay. never had really seen what autom- you know building automation systems were coming from the navy it was a manual operation it's turning hand wheels and and valves and everything is really manual gauges and and um not a lot of instrumentation in a way that was uh digitized in any form and so Controls and automation immediately started pulling me in, drawing my interest. I, you know, with a little, with a lot of computer aptitude in my background, I, I started digging in and really diving in and uh, embracing it. I think I first system was a Stafa um, system uh, 2000. I, I'm probably misquoting the, the original. It's a hard Stafa system and binary old command prompt DOS based commands <laughs> and get in and do block logic uh, and and but at the time we were also modernizing. Uh, Microsoft is already leaning forward and and modernizing with uh, Siemens newer system after Siemens had acquired Stafa, they were already bringing their Apogee system so started jumping in, learning line code, understanding how those systems came together. Um, so again, a good, great learning opportunity to really lean in. Um, Microsoft at the time was one of the larger digital campuses in the world, um, you know, as far as just a fully connected digital ecosystem, uh, you know, across, 
you know, it, it was eight million and growing, uh, you know, uh, uh, eight million square feet of commercial real estate. And all of it has, at that point, had already started to come together as a fully connected digital backbone. Um, okay. And so it, it evolved and kind of built off of that. And I, I got to really learn it, lean in, um, start taking up a lot of the Siemens classes. We They were bringing on Allerton as a secondary, uh, at the time it was a local Redmond startup uh, control company. Um, and the, and Microsoft was embracing them. They started. They came brought on a building with a, under Allerton. Uh, went and went to their Redmond headquarters. Took up a bunch of their training to get certified under that system. And okay. um, really cut my teeth kind of on those uh, automation systems in those early years. Um, and and I would say really in 2003 2004. That's also when those systems were pivoting from what had really been RS-232, uh, RS-485, directed serial connected systems into Ethernet connected systems. All of a sudden, they were trying to come online and go onto the network. Um, I remember uh, early on, uh, one of the first buildings we were bringing on uh, as an internet connected device, and we had some issues with it. There, you know, what we, at the time, I think it was a broadcast storm that had knocked out one of the IP controllers. I was still learning how to troubleshoot the network side of, of things, and I had to go sit in front of a, a lab manager and explain myself, and he, he read me the riot act and almost, you know, kind of laid down the story of like, you know, like I, you know, I'm a, I'm a network engineer, and what you're trying to explain to me is like a caveman explaining, you know, to... Uh, Leonardo. So I was I was realizing I was not equipped with the right terminology and some of the right skill set. Yeah. So at that point, I was I re I knew that I needed to go in and all right, okay, I might be good in mechanics and I might be good now in automation, but now it's time to go polish up and um, learn some networking. And yeah. so went out, took a Net Plus A plus course, worked through some certifications on that. Really had to lean in and dive through as we were bringing the fully ethernet connected and enabled systems online. Um, and really on how much those complexities started to impact what we were doing and how that affected system reliability, it affected data integrity, all of the mm -hmm. other things that would start to become watch points and buzzwords later, these were already in the early days of just internet, first yeah. base internet connected systems already becoming something we had to pay attention to really closely. Yeah, I mean, we're still talking about ITOT gap, ITOT convergence now, yep. 2022. And, absolutely. I mean, that's probably one of our most, you know, current, you know, buzzing topics is, is ITOT mm -hmm. right now. And it was the early aspects of it. And I would say at the time there really wasn't a, it wasn't a clear line, you know, to the IT departments. It's still much the case and, you know, traditional legacy uh, uh, organizations right now, they're still, you know, why are you on my network? What are you doing? You're creating issues for me. Now I have to come solve your problem. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time, one of the good things that, that it felt like we did and embraced was we don't want it to be your problem. We'll figure it out. Um, so collectively, you know, my, the team that I was a part of it, as we were growing, um, we wound up deciding A plus net plus was great. I pivoted out when it, and started to pursue Microsoft System Certified Engineer, and and I said, okay, this is the right way to go. I've got to get deeper. I've got to understand these systems at a level that I can speak comfortably, understand them, troubleshoot them, 
operate them in this Microsoft corporate environment um, and really how to how to bring them all together. Uh, so it needed more skills. And it's and the, the beauty of it is that it always does. Um, good and bad is that, you know, we all have to we have to be lifelong learners and constantly keep at it and keep trying to bring more tools into our toolbox as we we move forward with some of these systems. So totally. Totally. Um, um, I, before you go, I have a couple of follow-up questions on that little piece of your your background. One is, I have to say that my grandpa was in the Navy and he was uh, in the submarines as well. Um, yeah, he was. Um, it was in the fifties. One of my my uh, jokes I used to keep in my cube was uh, there's only two kinds of ships: submarines and targets. Submarines and, and targets. I had nice. I had a few uh, a few other Navy comrades that were uh, surface sailors that n never quite appreciated that, but uh, it's submarine humor. Nice. If I was back in my office, I would show you. He, he handed me down his, uh, his binoculars, uh, oh, nice. and they're on my desk or behind my desk, normally in view of the camera, but since I'm traveling yeah. today, I don't have it. Um, okay, a couple, couple other questions was around Johnson Controls. So I, I wanted to follow up on, you said JCI was a facility management firm. Do they do that today? Because it seems like, you know, there's the big FM firms, yep. you know, CBRE, JLL, Cushman Wakefield. That was something that JCI did, and they were sort of competing on that level back then, seems like. They were, and at that time, it was, they were branded as as IFM. It was just their, the internal operating, ultimately, it became their GWS, um, Global Workplace Services okay. uh, Division, and flat, which was kind of a full circle moment for me in that, uh Johns Controls held the contract with Microsoft from 1997 to 2002. They okay. lost the bid while I was there. We had a big announcement. You know, uh, Johnson's lost the, the contract. We're transitioning over to Grumman Ellis Management Services, GEMS, as it was typically it was known. Um, and for the most part, everybody just changed shirts and moved on. You know, some <laughs> of the management yeah. changed over, but a lot of the technicians uh, wanted to continue working on the campus. We just changed over and, and kept moving forward. Got uh, it. Majority of that core did. Gems rode through from 2002 to 2012. Really took outside of their other in in their other business aspects. Took a, a big hit in the economic downturn, kind of throughout 08 and 09, mm. and never fully recovered, as I understand it. Um, okay. I, I, don't, I don't know all the aspects of that part of it, but they in the end were really struggling financially, as I understood it. And by 2012, Microsoft asked. Uh, CBRE to step in and um, CBRE had already had a long presence had been delivering other services not uh, hard FM at that time on my, for okay. Microsoft and so it was an extension of their other services had a really good leadership core already in place had a good relationship with the Microsoft as a client so they were asked to come in um, and so CBRE took over in 2012 and uh, still holds the, con the, the facility management contract there uh, 10 years later. So they're still okay. along there. And, and full circle moment was a I believe it is 2016. Um, CBRE acquires uh, JCI's GWS division. Um, okay. And my, my date may be wrong, but I think it was 2016. They acquire their GWS division. All of those services come into, into CBRE. I see. And I, that was kind of my moment. I'm like, all right, I, I stayed in one place, but I've been all around now and have traveled multiple companies, but <laughs> I've come back to the one I originated with for the most part. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. My final question, and then I want you to continue with your, your background was, I think all of the nerds in the, in the audience would be remiss if I didn't ask you what teardown school was. What did you do in teardown school? So with chillers, you know, chillers are one of the, that's the bread and butter of a lot of corporate real estate campuses, big central plants uh, you, where you, you have the large centrifugal chiller systems. Uh, and those, the Navy, because especially submarines, you have to operate independently. You have to be able to fix anything on your own when it goes, when it goes south and you're, you're out and forward deployed. So uh, every, typically every ship would wind up having somebody, uh, one or two at least, that had gone through their uh, maintenance school. And within that is a full teardown of the unit where you, you take the entire chiller pretty much to almost suspended rotor, um, bearings, oil pumps, uh, all the instrumentation go through the, uh, all of the control panel, all of the uh, electrical uh, aspects of it, every piece of it, you work through the entire hmm. chiller, take it all the way down pretty much to the studs put it back together again, refill it with the uh, refrigerant, push the button, hope that it uh, it spins over <laughs> and everything starts back up and, and runs. Uh, it sounds terrifying. Yeah. yeah okay. it, it, that, there's that, that moment is it, it's kind of your final day and you go through and you, you're, you're hitting it and you're hoping nothing screams and everything uh -huh. starts up and you go through your checks and your balances uh, of the unit and uh, you really learn the ins and outs of how they how they work um okay. and it was it was great at the end I, it it carried forward in a way that i wouldn't have maybe had thought but then when i got to uh, microsoft and was working with really a, a you know a mixed set of technicians there was a lot of guys that had come through trade school really knew you know in-depth technical knowledge on ac units and heat pumps and split systems and things that on some of those rooftop units that i was less clear on but mm -hmm. it typically, when it came to the chiller plants and those centrifugal chillers, even though at that point we were using trains, uh, very similar, almost almost identical in all other, every other aspect of how they operate, uh, I could really lean in and be uh, a knowledge owner for them, help train other technicians, uh, understand how they were supposed to operate, which the central plant being core to a lot of um, centralized campus operations, that wind mm -hmm. up being really uh, a core skill set carried forward a few years. Um, ultimately, uh, about circa 2006, we started up a, 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 a retro commissioning program, um, and uh, we had had been looking at. Um, I had I had started to develop some kind of advanced techniques. Advanced at the time, now it seems kind of pretty quaint. Exporting. Uh, reports and putting them into CSVs and taking the CSVs and normalizing them and starting to run some basic data analytics on just on how many valves are, are out of position, how many valves are fully open and how many valves are closed, what, what valves are outside of their commands, you know, things that would start to become fundamentals of fault detection. Um, at the time, I was trying to work up some of my own pieces, um, had a great venture. Again, this is something I'll, I, I probably will return to multiple times as a uh, a, the a common theme. Microsoft has always been, it's a great campus and it, they've always been an outstanding client in wanting to embrace kind of the newest, most forward approach to how they operate and run their campus. M more mm -hmm. often, they, they consistently want to come back to that. Um, one of the things that we had was a great uh, joint venture was uh, Pacific Northwest National Laboratories known 
now especially known for one of their one of their core um, domains that they have within their suite of different you know nuclear technologies one but they also work on building systems and yeah. building performance as a, a, a core principle that they uh, research and deploy yeah. um, they I were closely with them when I was at NREL yeah yeah and, and like I said they're a really great resource bunch of smart guys over there I've met with uh, different groups at different times but back in 2005 they were really putting together some basic at the time basic guidance um, and we got a hold of the the early guidance and some of it were it was built on uh, their own investigation elements of NIST standards and what would be yep. recommendations for uh, operations of refrigeration equipment or air, uh, air conditioning equipment air handling systems so I started really unpacking and onboarding a lot of that knowledge and trying it out. Some of it was similar to stuff I was already working on. Some of it was really great and educational. Some of it we were able to provide feedback to them to say, we see where you're going here, but here's maybe some things that were successful. And I think that they then took and carried back into their own research. Um, mm -hmm. Really great learning opportunity. And it helped kickstart our retro commissioning program. Um, kind of one of the things, uh, again, bring it all around is, uh, my, one of my earliest partnerships with uh, DB Engineering was mm. that they were an advising engineering company at the time, much smaller, I think really only maybe a handful, maybe maybe a dozen engineers at tops at that point. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they had been brought on to support our retro commissioning program. And so as the retro commissioning program was standing up, we would pair a control engineer and uh, um, uh, PE professional engineer with a mechanical engineering background and a commissioning agent as part of our retro commissioning program. Uh, okay. So the three of us would typically deploy to a campus side by side, hunker down in a chiller plan, an operator's room with the, the BAS computer and, and really d dig in and start to run the reports, um, cool. run system reports, break down what, how the performance, you know, of the equipment was, was looking configure verified trend data set those up to make sure that they were reporting correctly we had all the right the points so we could do some of the offline analysis um, we'd go out do verify calibration typically the the commissioning agent myself would go out run in temperature probes you know open up open up the peats plugs check all the different systems verify flows verify temperatures were correct and and sometimes those are the nowadays we go back and we do you know we look at you know data regression models and try to understand, you know, what's the, the you know, is this within a standard range? Is this uh, sensor working where it is? And we can run those automatically. Back then we had to do a lot of it manually. Some cases we had to throw a flow meter on, on a piece of a leg of pipe because there was no flow meter installed in the system. And so often we were trying to do it manually, um, but it really gave us some root principles that, that helped out. Um, hmm. and, I would say the the three complementary skill sets, we learned a ton from each other. The commissioning agent came at it with a documentation rigor and an approach of here's how you would uh, validate you know system testing, functional performance testing, um, incorporating air balancing uh, schedules. Mechanical engineer really brought core principles. Sometimes would check me on things that I would I would think were. Oh, this is a standard assumption I might make about how things were operating. And you're like, no, 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 no. Let's go back and let's let's look at the calculation because actually that's going to consume more energy than than you think. Mm -hmm. And I, 
you know, in some cases we'd okay, really hunker down, and he'd prove me he'd prove me wrong. Sometimes I would go back and say, hey, we can't operate it that way because uh, stability issues, and and he would he would like, oh no no, it's supposed to be, it's designed to perform at this level, and we'd go back, we'd argue about it a little bit, and then turns out we find a, a good common ground. Um, That's awesome. So, it was great, great ground. Um, we had uh, multiple years with the retro commissioning program uh, that really set the stage for, uh, thankfully, we had, I think, 06 through 08, 09, um, successful program. We were getting to about 10 different clusters of sites uh, a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd be able to run all the reports. We, we produced uh, energy recommendations. Uh, project recommendations, things that need to be spun up. We were probably, and we were getting rebates from the local utilities, so we were probably targeting, you know, I think on average we were about $250,000 in energy saves per year. Successful program at the time, felt really great. Mm -hmm. We were tangible results, things we could see um, and measure. Come forward a few years, and 2009, um, maybe it was late 2008, 2009, uh, we get a new Microsoft, director of operations under the real estate portfolio that had come in from Cisco, Daryl Smith, um, comes in and he's just a, just a big personality full of energy and, and has a real passion, had a real huge passion for smart buildings. He had already been working closely with some of the Realcom team, uh, Jim Young and uh, uh, Howard and some of the other folks. He'd been working really closely with them already. And when he got on site, I was blown away. I think... I might have had half dozen conversations in the you know nine you know almost ten years at that point working on campus. Maybe I'd had a total of a half dozen conversations ever with our facilities director on the Microsoft side. <laughs> he was really business. They were typically business focused, you know, services focused, outcome focused on, and rightfully so. But uh, day one, Daryl came and sought out my the controls group. It was like day one on campus. He came, found our, at the time, we were, weren't quite an operations center, but in a bullpen, a old cube-style farm, and he, he comes out and finds us. He's like, hey, I'm Daryl, and once you inter- he was really energetic, wanted to introduce himself, and he's immediately, what control systems are you running? Uh, Siemens and Allerton and this parts of the campus. Okay, how are they connected? What kind of data are you pulling in, and what, what reports are you running? Oh, do you guys have a retro commissioning program? I mean, just... Day one, he was on fire about awesome. some of those topics, and and it was like, whoa, okay, this is really cool. This might go somewhere, yeah. and it did. He he became the really the point of inception, inspiration for kicking off our our smart buildings program. Amazing, yeah, amazing, was, and he he like partnered with Accenture, I think, back then, and wrote a white paper about FDD. It was really it was like smart campus, but it was really about FDD, and. Just to take it full circle with me, mm-hmm. I read that white paper as a graduate at a mechanical contracting firm, and it kind of set me on my path as well. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. Was again one of those things where we were fortunate and had the opportunity. It's one of those that I uh, t- sometimes hard work can go unanswered, unsought in a, in a vacuum, and nobody sees it. But hard work paired with the right environment and the right ultimate stakeholders and, and client, Microsoft was great about endorsing and supporting mm-hmm. it. And ultimately, having a really key stakeholder like Daryl was 
you know, that was the revolutionary catalyst that sparked the rest of our, our smart buildings development. Um, he came in. I think we had a really good ecosystem of talent. We had uh, engineers. Uh, you know, I, hate, I want to make sure I shout out to my old team, Jonathan uh, Grove. And then I had a great program manager that, that Daryl brought on, Travis Schrag. Um, and just it was the right dynamics, uh, ultimately, of that inception, that team inception that started off that when he came on, was on fire about it. He, I think at the time, brought in a, um, Jim Sinopoli as a kind of like a, 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 a real knowledgeable industry consultant to help lean into it, brought a lot of our team together, some of our other senior leaders, established a, a, a really clear-cut set of requirements and guidelines of what the program would be, even before we went to, out to RFI and RFP. Um, mm-hmm. And then kicked off and started that round of initiating an RFI to go out to the, the community as a whole, the industry to say, Mike, this is where we're interested, what, who's you know viable and wanting to participate. I think they RFI'd to 11 companies, RFP down to six. Um, we went through rounds and rounds of presentations and um, review other products. Down selected, down to down to pilot three separate solutions um, that we would take and kick off. A, we what became an 18 month pilot, okay. um, a convergent parallel pilot at the same time. Got it. Let's pause here for one more quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll get back to the show. We've talked about the importance of occupancy data over and over on the show, and the team at Butler would like to reinforce it. Occupancy data drives a variety of use cases across workplace experience, real estate planning, and facilities management, and is too valuable to be siloed in a walled garden. Every building and workspace would benefit from accurate, private, cost-effective occupancy data accessible via API. So go to www.nexuslabs.online slash 091 or click the link in the show notes to listen to Nexus Podcast episode 91 with my conversation with Rags Gupta, president of Butler, on their approach to provide accurate, API-first occupancy data at a fraction of the cost while not being physically able to collect personally identifiable information. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to say so there's three directions I kind of want to take this. One is just an overview of that was the beginning of the Microsoft Smart Buildings program. Yep. I'd love for you to do an overview of kind of where that program is at today. So you mentioned before we hit record here that sort of smart buildings kind of grew up around you, right? So can you talk about okay, um, you know, the, you guys were doing this before a lot of a lot of people were. But what is that program today? What are all the technologies that are sort of in place? And then I kind of want to go from there into your remote operations center and some of the sure. best practices for sort of working with uh, and lessons learned that you've that you've sort of had a lot, you know, along the on the, along the way. Yeah, it, it, and a lot of it 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 starts with that 2012 core. Um, we went through the pilot phase, uh, selected at that time Iconics as the the winner of the the pilot. Um, that began a deployment from 2012 to 2014. Uh, 2014, majority of the headquarters campus was deployed at that point. Uh, it was also the time that Microsoft uh, initiate where it was really in the growth of Azure and what they wanted mm-hmm. to do with cloud computing. We okay. partnered really closely with some of the early Azure development on uh, getting that the iconic system embedded in the cloud. Uh, 
excuse me, and that was a that was a really good pivot. Um, 2014, we it was at cloud deployment, and North America and global sites began de deploying. Uh, 14 to 17, we deployed to uh, three other four four other sorry four other North America sites: Fargo, um, Charlotte, North Carolina, Las Colinas, Texas, and Silicon Valley, um, Sunnyvale, California. And um, after that took us 2014 about 2016, 2016 to 18 went to international sites: Beijing, um, Shanghai. Ultimately, Dublin, uh, we looked at Hyderabad, and ultimately they were going through remodel, so we didn't deploy to Hyderabad. Uh, but Beijing, Shanghai, and Dublin internationally were all deployed under the Iconics system as well for us. Um, and under what had grown out of that as well into a suite of services. Um, at the time we started out, I was primarily just the subject matter expert, really kind of the smart building knowledge owner uh, paired with the engineers, paired with the program managers. Uh, as that program really had to expand, we had to grow the team. The operations center was growing into a full-time 24-7, 365, mm -hmm. parallel embedded uh, working activity with the smart buildings program. And so okay. I was standing up. At that point, they made me the chief engineer, team leader for, for both teams. We were building out the operations team um, as a fully functioning team, we built out the smart building system integrators, uh, back-end system engineers and um, application engineers, and uh, developed those teams further. Um, ultimately, coming back up to current, where all of those teams had to continue to expand as we expanded the campus, as we expanded mm -hmm. into international support, as we were working with other FM providers, um, it, DB Engineering was uh, right there along with us all the way through as a consultant um, leaning in. We would, at, at the time, CBRE was uh, running program management, FM services, and then DB Engineering would be providing engineering consultancy. Um, all of that bringing kind of coming to the modern times now where campus has been fully de deployed, uh, had run through a period, probably just something to, to homework and bring up is a uh, 2014 to 2018 was a very firm commitment organizationally of, hey, we got this tool, what do we do with it? How do we maximize mm -hmm. it? Um, collectively, Microsoft and CBRE came together and said, well, the best way is to organize, organize around it, to make sure we are staffed um, and our teams are aligned for development of it and deployment of it. Let's make a commitment of what we're gonna be as a fiscal target of an energy target and we will add the staff and headcount so it's a directly account of attributable ROI on we're adding this many headcount, we're going to have this uh, energy fiscal target at the other end of it, and we had to track to it, report on it on a quarterly basis. Uh, we missed our first quarter. That was great. <laughs> first one out of the box. Um, but other than that, we had every other quarter exceeded um, every target we had for the next three and a half years. So delivered on a fiscal commitment of straight energy reduction um, and, and pushed uh, you know, hundred, you know, millions of kilowatt hours down for Microsoft's operations, and found a ton of efficiency. Uh, worked really well with submitting for validation on the with Puget Sound Energy, and so in the back end of it, DB Engineering was submitting and quantifying our fault functions and submitting them to um, Puget Sound Energy for rebates. And they would go through their engineering department re review, validate. Okay, you said you corrected X. We can see the 
data correction, we can see the trend data validates it before and after, and looks like it's persisting, um, we'll, we'll uh, award the rebate. And hmm. it was great because ultimately that was our independent sounding board that we typically just didn't have other validation to, you, you, you work in your own vacuum and you don't know for sure what's yeah. happening. Um, so that was great. Collectively, collectively, the program um, really kind of hit its stride in 2018. Uh, there were advancements in other areas from 2018 to 2020. Uh, comfort index was a parameter that we, we had generated within DB Engineering. Uh, CBRE partnered together, come up with a how is this going to work and how will it uh, affect operations with a non-energy focused lens. Mm -hmm. uh, client was looking for, uh, we had transitioned, Daryl had transitioned off of Microsoft. Uh, Mohan Reddy had become our, our new stakeholder um, and really was he embraced and, and, and empowered us with what we were delivering, but then challenged us to go further. Uh, I remember one time he's like, yeah, great, you got the energy stuff down. Now I want to see what else you can do and, and really pushed us forward into comfort analytics, uh, escalations uh, around how can we be ahead of uh, customer comfort and, and finding ways to measure that, uh, respond to them fast and, and um, in a timely manner. What else could okay. we do with the systems in order to uh, work on uh, reliability, uh, critical uptimes, uh, uh, system response to uh, power outages. Other, every other aspect of operations had started to continue to expand coming forward into 2018 to 2020. Uh, other innovation principles really had started to, to, to blossom out of our test lab. Um, I didn't really mention that, but we had, had developed, Daryl had sponsored development of an innovation test lab where anything new that was getting thrown at, at a corporate campus, we want to put it on the board and test it. Uh, we'd run it validated um, whether it was in ocean data protocols, uh, PV harvest, light harvesting technology, solar panels, electrochromic glass technology of a couple of different providers and how would that work? Uh, one point we had a giant solar lamp, uh, solar lamp uh, powering down on a solar panel in the lab hmm. with electrochromic glass in between and we would run some tests and, and do a data validation on the back end of it. Huh. Um, a lot of different things, like quirky things we wound up doing in there was uh, uh, the uh, parking counter. Uh, there was a real high dollar parking counter that had, had I think had come out of some uh, Italian developer that we weren't getting uh, real great support on. So they were curious, like, what could you guys do as a low cost initiative that might go in? So we had parking counters in there and you might come by the lab and we'd be jumping up and down on, on a parking counters to raise the counts and trigger our, our analytics to uh, when to, to change the sign <laughs> quality or to, to send out alerts and kind of a bunch of crazy stuff. Um, it connected fire extinguishers from Engage and uh, connected ceiling systems. And so all that e ecosystem of uh, technologies we were really trying to bringing together up through about 2020. And then pandemic hits, alters the course of things a little bit, but for the most part, a lot of that technology and platform continued forward. Certainly created a different, you know, a different course than we might have been pursuing, we might have been on even before that. One of the things I want to circle back mm -hmm. on there is, I feel like, I don't know what year you guys started doing this remote operations center, but, mm -hmm. you know, I've had other people on the podcast that have talked about it in the past. I think we can probably link back to the conversation with Leon from Bueno. 
he talks about how this has kind of taken off in different industries in Australia. It's becoming more and more popular in the U.S. Yep. Can you talk about a little bit, like, what are some best practices for running an operations center like that when you're leveraging FDD? And how can, if I'm a portfolio owner and I'm thinking about, hey, I got 50 buildings, we don't have an operations center stood up right now, what are the things that they need to think about to make that happen? Uh, I probably have good things and some bad things um, in that area. I think, you know, we sometimes had grown up natively. Uh, we had started off with a you know, uh, you know, five days a week operation center or, or control room. Uh, then, hey, let's take it to extended hours. Let's pick up some swing hours. Um, uh, and then eventually worked our way towards 24 by 7. But it was a little bit, you know, we, we were working within the tools that we had. We worked within the BAS system as we tried to optimize those. Uh, probably one of my favorite and core practices that I will, I will always come back to when it comes to BAS systems is that we were again i think blessed with a really good client that was uh before daryl had come on uh, Rhonda cone was a, a, an awesome sponsor that had leaned in very heavily with how we were running the the automation systems and wanted to understand when new projects came on and microsoft has grown and expanded in a lot of different ways and then they have a a pace with construction and remodeling and updating their buildings that's it's not I would say typical in the industry all the, all the time. And so we would see construction outages and it would knock out a complete building system. And now I've got a critical lab going down because we've lost visibility, systems aren't connecting. Everybody scrambles and goes and tries to respond and figure out what's happening. Um, construction practices and standards and guidelines. Uh, Microsoft issued a really clear cut set of standards and guidelines. This is how we will build the spaces. This is how we will operate them. These are the parameters. They had an expanded addendum on top of those standards and guidelines that we call the facility system business rules, FSBRs. Um, uh, and it's, you know, acronym soup like much of the industry, but we would, we would go back to those FSBR guidance and it was really clear cut submittal process. What's submitted in design, uh, essentially in parallel with DD and construction drawings that would go in as a sequence of operation a drawing submittal of functional drawing with all instrumentation and something we called CMAT uh, control monitor alarm and trend table that would outline every data all point points. within within a given asset and that asset that you were you were submitting for review so if I was submitting an air handler it would have here's discharge air temperature what type it's a AI of this type and it will be monitored in this way on this on on a floor plan it'll be monitored on a building overview screen it'll be alarmed at this given rate at this threshold it'll be trended at a given threshold and every point on a standard deployment of an air handler would be itemized and outlined there um, and then that each asset pump system air handling system ac system fan coil terminal vavs uh, chillers everything had its own template that it had to be submitted under uh, that program gave us an outstanding basis because our early operations really struggled at times with a lot of running around you know like a chicken with its head cut off just kind of responding like a, with a fire let's go f oh we just had a big outage let's go see what's happening and we could get into some things but then all of a sudden the bas system would be with loss of communication we'd find a contractor cut a comm wire and they had never submitted that they were working in a given space. We couldn't put any other controls around what they were doing of mitigating those conditions. And so 
Microsoft did a really good job about controlling that and putting uh, guidance and how that would be handled. We built the programs for submission and, and inclusion, so it's standardized. All of our systems, regardless of what control system, Allerton, Siemens, they would all come in in the same standardized submitted format. Um, that really got us some consistency. We were the operations team was able to then review code, uh, verify basically with the commissioning agent that the systems were online. They met all the criteria, submitted criteria. So when the operations department, when we, the op center took over, they had already had validation. So our FSBR program mm -hmm. laid that connective handoff from construction to operations. I will attribute that as so many elements of our success, not just in operations, ultimately in the building and the, the development and the birth of the smart buildings program. We, we'd never be, have been as successful if we had inconsistent monitoring, labeling, uh, ter naming terminology. Uh, we had a naming standard, you know, long before, uh, you know, other ontologies had come about, Haystack and others. We had a very concrete, established naming standard coming forward um, that all the systems would, would adhere to. And so those helped the op center. As the op center staffed up, they had really predictive, this is the type of alarms I'm going to get. This It'll always be formatted in this manner. And whenever it wasn't, we'd go back, we'd had work backs to, to correct it. Wasn't perfect. We, you know, at times we would be, I'm not, we're, they were operating still out of the alarm screen from the, the BAS. They were operating out of an Outlook screen on an alarm folder that they would be, you know, generating SMTP traffic from the BAS to, to drive alarms. Um, but we, we built those in ultimately as the smart buildings platform came online, we drew a very clear line between alarms and faults. Uh, faults are not alarms and faults should not be looking at the same thing as alarms. An alarm is an emergency. Mm -hmm. An alarm is a heart attack. You're having a heart attack, something's wrong, take immediate action, go to the hospital now. Dispatch technicians, I'm overheating, critical space needs attention now. A fault is high blood pressure. It is all of the other conditions that are leading up to it. Oh, hey, you, you have all these other problems that whether they're an energy driver or ultimately a reliability driver that will lead to an alarm condition potentially, but they may, a fault may operate and the system may achieve its goals for years and nobody knows any better. You're just doing it inefficiently. Um, mm -hmm. So we made a really clear distinction between the two. I had always had, having come from the operation side, one to bring more of our our alarm um, hierarchy into the systems, but they were really challenged to do. Um, the alarming functions within the BASs uh, were still really hard to bring across. They weren't native backnet at times, and so we couldn't maybe maybe we couldn't subscribe to event enrollments and objects that would let us see it. Intrinsic values were not always ex exposed as a backnet property you could monitor in the smart building solution. So. There was a lot of it that we still had to grind through mm -hmm. forward and we've had you know there's big leaps in the technology more of the standards and systems are more on backnet natively so those things can, can and have been intro, uh, introduced into a, a universal dashboard alarming dashboard uad and that has now become a standard function where they can use it as a viewable screen it can be a filterable screen where you can get more out of it i feel like alarm optimization is still a target. Um, some of the work I was doing uh, prior to joining DB Engineering with uh, CBRE the last year on what it was standard, standardizing as a corporate function 
one of our core tenants was really looking at alarm optimization. How do you reduce yep. the rigor, reduce the cycles on the operator? How do you focus them to get to the right place? I don't, and this is consistently, I don't feel like we've got great answers in that area still. Um, I think my old team, we struggled with it. We tried to bring it across. It got deprioritized at times. Well, let's focus on the energy saves. Okay. Um, the, the technology was always a little bit off in how we would bring them together. There's a lot of good marketing at people that are doing it. Um, I think it has been done in some really good um, bite-sized pieces. I think it's still an area that we've got as a smart platform forward look forward looking that's an area that alarm optimization alarm hierarchy um you know neutralizing of alarms from other than from an inception point of chiller plant if a chiller trips on uh, you know a safety and i get high chill water temperature that's great i the chiller alarm is the inception point i need to focus on and respond to high chill chill water temperature uh high chill you know high pumping from the ch the, the chiller pumps high discharge air temperature from an air handler, high space temperature from, you know, in a building, in a lab, in a terminal. Those are all secondary conditions. I need to focus mm -hmm. on dispatch. Optimizing that has still been a challenge. I think there's a lot of good tools, and we've got a lot of anecdotal, oh, we this is how we do it. I just don't think it's been as deployed as well as I'd like to see. We didn't do it as well as I'd wanted to do it, even um, with the oper operation center. Um, and do you see... so? If, if you're looking at like the industry as a whole and kind of like where everyone needs to go from here, do you see FDD software platforms kind of taking on more of a role to start to make sense of all that noise? Or do you see yeah. it more being on the BAS side of things that they need to um, kind of improve the products there? Hopefully a little bit of both. Um, okay. But I, I would imagine the, the, the BAS sides have done better. Um, one time, one challenge I think with the BAS is, and, and I, I hearken back to one of my, uh, I was an early cynic on why were we gonna do smart buildings. Um, at the time I felt very uh, BAS competent and sa sa savvy. Uh, mm -hmm. When the very first pass at, hey, we're gonna do the smart buildings program. We're gonna put on the software layer and integrate and we're gonna do these things with it. And I looked at him like, why are you gonna pay all that money to go have somebody do it? I can go do it for you. Uh, you want new graphics? I can go build graphics. You want new uh, at faults? Okay, great, I, I can code that. Why not just, we can just do that ourselves. Why do you need these other systems? Ultimately, it's the, the you know, much of the medley of what we've talked about over the years is it's the marriage of many systems. And I could code in block code in Allerton and I could code in, in line code over in Siemens, but the two are not directly applicable. And yet if I can build a system in a smart buildings platform, that's when I can start to become, you know, really, a force multiplier by expanding that capability and applying it across multiple systems. Smart buildings tech will be able to do that. A client that has multiple BAS providers, which is more often than not the norm. Unfortunately, well, that is the norm. Pretty much. And mm -hmm. most of them will have many. They'll have building here and building there, and they'll both be systems. It might be multiple floors with multiple BASs. Um, the ability to aggregate those, that comes to the smart building platform more often than not. The providers are going to tell you, oh, we have API connectivity. We can bring in that system's alarms natively, and our dashboard is is got all the widgets. You can use our system to do it. More often than not, if you're going to do the lift and shift and all the other system integration aspects, you're going to be probably taking it into a smart building platform of some form to do that as well. So I think inherently that that part of the industry will, will win. I think fault detection 
in its core algorithmic process provides a root capability for advanced alarming that you don't have in the BAS systems as well without in-depth coding, not a systemic UI that can uh, enable it. Uh, I think you get that core function with fault detection at a better, deeper level than you do within the BAS coding. However, there, you're still kind of limited to the whatever functions the FDD tool allows you to, to build. And more advanced hierarchical faults and alarm capabilities. Alarm aggregation is going to require other analysis beyond, you know, typical if-then type of fault algorithm uh, development. I want to know more about my alarms. I need to know inherent relationships. That chiller example I was quoting, that I need to know the relationship of that chiller to all those secondary systems. Mm -hmm. Establishing that in the BAS has not been as clean as we'd like it to be. Um, no. More of the smart buildings have that capability within the, the larger schema um, and ontologies that are now showing relationships, whether you, you extend beyond into BREC and a ReCore, more of those dynamic relationships. Digital Twin is, uh, you know, another function where that relationship and not just um, a typical hierarchy of this system is by these, you know, these daughter systems from this parent system. But how does that system affect these other neighboring systems? The ontology provides that wider capability to have that dynamic relationship. I think we're going to have to see that continue to go further to have that really true next generation alarming capability. Um, some tools are getting closer and closer. And again, I think there, there's deployments that are out there that are now really starting to highlight it. Uh, but mostly they're a little bit more of the boutique ones um, and they're the one off. And, where we get with the tool sets to, that we, becomes more the norm is, is still, I think, part of the industry that has to grow into. Yeah, totally. Circling back on the remote operations center piece, I'd love to hear how, as you made that switch from, you know, you had all these disparate sites spread out throughout the world. You guys created this remote operations center, started to pull different buildings in, main campus, but also all these different other campuses throughout the world. How did the service contracts for BAS um, mechanical have to transform to sort of um, not accommodate this new paradigm, but how did FDD and this sort of, you know, software mindset, centralized software mindset sort of transform how then Microsoft did service contracts? It had to be embedded. Um, initially, some of it was, uh, you know, more of a one-off we need you to engage in these areas. Here's parts of, you know, contract or other services as provided that might account for it. But then ultimately they had to be expanded. Uh, performance objectives had to be changed. Um, and, you know, it, well, it worked well in most cases. Sometimes it wasn't perfect. Um, you know, it, we were at the time I was under CBRE as the facility provider for Puget Sound and the Redmond headquarters and North America. There were other providers outside of North America that we had to work partner with, JLL, hmm. um, Sodexo, uh, JCI at one point was still in, in uh, before prior to the acquisition. Um, most of those dynamics all worked great. Um, I had great partnerships, uh, you know, met with different FM leaders under different umbrellas. They were all very, you know, engaged and wanted to, to participate. They would be skeptical. They would, you know, and when they were given targets, uh, you need to start to achieve these, these quarterly goals. 
they would really push back. They would want to analyze them. Um, mm-hmm. They would work with their partners. There was a lot of relationship aspects that had to come together. Their contracts had ultimately had to be, uh, you know, there was some slight change orders and scope changes that had to be developed. Um, some worked, some didn't. Um, you know, we had, uh, there was new construction going on one of the sites and the construction team was very focused on what they were doing. They weren't wanting to engage as cleanly with what we were trying to align to where with their delivery. It really took us almost a year post-construction to get on board with the, the FM provider after they hmm. were stood up and brought them along to understand, here's where you want to go. Here's how we're going to engage. Here's how we're going to try to report on it with you. Here's where we'll partner the meeting rigor and the cadence that would, would connect on those pieces. Um, but it, it, it's at the end of the day, it's like almost everything else in FM. It winds up being relationships. Um, you know, the system and the technology is great. At the end of the day, it still requires people and partnerships and relationships to actually make these things happen. Um, and it was consistent across all of the, the other providers that we worked with. Um, you know, some were great, some, Needed work, and, you know. Took a little bit more massaging. Uh, and I'd, I'd say one thing too is uh, it, it's it's organizationally one of the pieces that I would. Every company that wants to really lean in and embrace it, they have to they have to take a hold of it and know that and commit to it. That level of commitment uh, by the organization is one of the biggest. I think the enablers of the entire industry. We can have all the yeah, technology right. in the world. None of the, you know, I, and I've talked with people that have come in with a perception about smart buildings, and um, my my nerdiness always comes out because I'll, I'll try to make a, a association and tell them and this is not a Genesis box. It's not a you drop it in the building and it magically transforms the building. It ultimately is a tool that your people and your programs have to enable, have to lean into. They can be empowered by this tool. But the tool will do some things for you, but it will never do all things for you. And you have to take and set objectives and lean in and, and embrace the technology. And you have to train your people. You have to build the organization in a structure that supports it um, and make commitments and stick with those commitments. Um, you know, depending totally. on the leadership, they people in one group or another group, if they're outside of it, they may not be as, as firm in the commitment. And you got to bring them to the table. Yeah, that's why we start in our foundations course. We start with stakeholders as as module one up up right and center, yeah. and it, it frustrates people that are new. They're like, I want to learn about the sexy tech. I want to, you know, exactly. jump right into digital twins and ontologies and all those things. And it's like, yeah. no, let's take a step back. No, let's let's figure out whether you actually have the stakeholder support that you need, or else yeah. you're just going to be pushing a boulder up a hill. It's it's the most um, important piece. They've got to buy in and know what they want out of it. If they don't. You can bring all the cool tech you want, and it's just a toy. It's not really going to be a tool that implements change until the people and the processes come with it. Totally. Well, Terrell, we're running out of time here. I want to um, ask you about one thing that I think would be interesting to get your perspective on before we kind of wrap up, which is I know one of the technologies that you guys ended up implementing was was Comfy. Mm-hmm. and. As someone that you described, self-described skeptic with smart buildings, I'd love to hear kind of the journey that you went on with, maybe we don't need to zero in on Comfy specifically, but an application that takes control of set points, takes control of control systems yeah. from the overlay, from the smart yeah. building sort of layer. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you thought of that initially and then where you kind of went with it as you as you yeah. grew into de- deploying it. Uh, skeptic again, um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm definite. I, I, as much of an embracer, uh, ultimately, with technology, I'm often the, the, the skeptic that wants to challenge it at first. Um, I, I was the guy that, you know, wanted the T-shirt that said, you know, the cloud is just somebody else's data center. And, and, and <laughs> so I was, I was not a cloud, easy, early cloud adopter until I was, until all of a sudden it was working and it was clicking and it empowered things. Comfy was the same way. Um, we, Comfy, uh, when they were still in kind of their startup phase pre, prior to their acquisition, uh, that Microsoft had had a few connections that brought them to us. And when that came to us and they said, hey, we're really interested in this technology. We want you to stand it up and tell us what, what you can do with it. Um, I, we pretty much had a mandate, you know, kind of came down because there was a high level corporate interest of, of what to do with Comfy. And um, we, we basically got from connection to startup of our first building. And I think a little bit under six weeks uh, where we were launching and, and had a building online and on board. Um, and there were elements of it. Comfy was still, you know, a bunch of awesome, cool, talented people. And I was still connected to many of them. Um, and, but at the time, they were still learning some of the industry. And again, part of the partnership was that we provided a lot of feedback. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were, you know, hey, we're going to override the terminal system in this way when there's a cool my space or warm my space requirement. And we're like, ooh, you do that, you're going to have these unintended consequences. Let's tweak it this way. And it'll work better. Um, their engineers were, were awesome, you know, you know, humble and curious. We worked back and forth with them. There was a lot of iteration. I think in the end, it, it wind up working engineering-wise. It's we got it to a place collectively. They did a lot on their own. We provided input, and it wind up working well. Um, or from an adoption and organization, uh, the first launch, and then ultimately. We had it kind of in a bake point for about six months and then before we really started to launch more buildings. Um, that one and then the second one. I think the second and third launches we did really were what turned my mind because uh, Comfy's, they had a really great engagement process. Uh, their success managers would come in, they would they'd bring a whole team for a launch day activity and they would come on site and they'd set up a booth in a common area or a cafe for the building. Uh, we'd send out a lot of, uh, you know, change management, which one of my other big pillars I'd love, solely wholly needed in the industry because without change management, people just don't adopt to these things. They were really great at it. They were awesome at engaging with the clients and reaching out to people the right points. The launch activities in the space, there'd be a big banner. They'd have handouts. They'd uh, have, you know, a lot of engagement and outreach to the client. I, I would sit kind of in the wings off to the side and watch them and listen but i would listen to the clients and it was one of the most where i was kind of going ah people don't even use adjustable thermostats on the wall why are they gonna start using a a phone an application you know they won't even get up and walk over and turn and adjust the thermostat slide on the by the door they're never going to use this and i'm grumpy and arms crossed sitting in the in the corner just kind of listening but I was open to the the prospect of the opportunity, listen, and I heard the clients and they loved it. They embraced it. They thought this is cool. This is super neat. I love the idea. Oh, I've always wondered what my temperature was. Oh, I didn't know I could do this. And, and I, okay. And part of me is kind of grumbling to myself. I'm like, oh, we have a, 
there's a facilities call center and there's a facilities page that tells them all the same information. Why are they embracing this new tech instead of going to the tech that they had? They, they loved it. Uh, it was there was just a, a different engagement, a different adoption, different generations. You know, also, you know, I'm I'm a firm Gen Xer, and there's millennials and beyond have a different way. As everybody knows, we see it. They come to technology in a different way, and have it on their phone as an application. Totally different engagement model. Um, and I became a huge supporter and enthusiast after I heard and saw the reaction from our occupants. Um, it, there was a real big embrace. There were also some curmudgeons out there. Um, <laughs> we, had, uh, we had some smart people that were uh, starting to write test scripts that could actually engage the, the, the application on a, a high frequency to adjust their temperatures. They were, there were people that they put up uh, on the internal Yammer page, they, uh, Comfy Wars, and it was like a Mortal Kombat design, and it was two people facing off, and I'm hot, I'm cold, and, you know, it was a really cool design, but again, it was like, okay, I guess that's an escalation point for me to go engage with the client, off to go uh, talk to them. Um, so it wasn't perfect, but as an application, as in a point of engagement with different people in different styles, Awesome. Um, people, once they figured it out, totally different, you know, method of getting in and interacting with the systems. As a curmudgeon old engineer wanting to maintain control of my systems, yeah, I was absolutely like, no, don't, don't mess with our systems. We ad eventually adopted it. We pulled the comfy analytics in. Uh, it it kickstarted a little bit of a working effort where we pulled the comfy analytics. Um, uh, I'm going to name drop my two, two of my old team members, Jason Johnson and Sheridan Allen. Uh, they were awesome at new approaches with some of these technologies. And one of the things was comfy data and analytics pulled into our work order data, uh, married that up with the rest of our fault detection information. And all of a sudden, we had a completely different uh, engagement uh, metric to see how the build the systems were performing how they were aligned to comfy requests versus uh, work order, traditional work orders and against our fault data. Um, <laughs> wound up creating a really, really cool uh, totality metric that let us see the performance of the building in a very different way. We had started to get some really good scorecards, building scorecards, incorporated comfort index, incorporated EUI. Um, this was the next piece that really blew it away. Um, uh, cool. It was tough. The data throughput wasn't always perfect. You had to go back and scrub a lot of it, but it was a really cool engagement when you start to bring some of those pieces because we never, we never get that engagement from a client. We would, you know, maybe they would submit a work order when they were hot or cold or something was noisy. Great. Never hear anything else from them. I wouldn't get upvotes, downvotes. I wouldn't see other pieces of that engagement cycle. Massive change, and it's one of the forward pieces that we as an industry have to really lean into. Um, I think you're gonna get curmudgeon uh, real estate execs that are gonna wanna hold off on that kind of thing and they think of it as fluff. But in the end, when I saw the impact to my clients and to my occupants, game changer and had to embrace it at that point. Um, and, and it was good deployment. We deployed it to, I think we were at 50 buildings pre-COVID. Um, you know, and you know they're going through kind of their own revision cycle with some of the new campus and how they're going to approach it going forward. But an experiential application that engages the clients must have. I, I, I view it now as, as as something that has to be part of the cycle. Absolutely, and I love hearing you talk about it because if you think about you know 
the startup and the new technology sort of deployment model. Um, you're late majority, late adopter in that you're viewing things with skepticism, um, which is great. And I, I love hearing you talk about how you've gone on your journey with it and, you know, were skeptical at first and then yeah. got it. And now you see it and now you're like, okay, well, here are the best practices yeah. uh, for actually implementing it. So it's, it's I, I awesome think it's to hear you talk about. I, I think at this point it, it's, it feels as if it's one of those things that now needs to become part of standard suite. Um, and, and whereas we put it out there as, as maybe you know boutique technology in the past mm -hmm. i think in the next few years it's just going to become part of standard fm and operational rigor it just have to have that element now especially as you're talking about combining it with these other data sources and yep. then the ability for you know some sort of data layer to then come in and combine everything together yeah uh absolutely all right tara well that's all, I'm sure we could talk about this all day. You have so all much day. history uh, of what you've been doing for so many years. Uh, let's end it for today. Maybe we could do another round two at some point. Sure. I, I end with every every episode ends with some carve outs. So is there a you know a book, newsletter, TV show, movie, podcast, etc. that's had a big impact on you lately that we could share with the audience? Uh, I, I typically try to have, it comes to books, I have what I call, uh, I always try to have brain candy and brain food. Um, okay, and, all right, I like I, that. I try to carve, because I used to, they would just try to, I would stack them up and I'd just have one reading list. Um, Me too. And But I found when I'm It's like, going, what mood are you in? Yeah, candy I, or food? It's mood, it's, mood, it's place. Um, it, like when I'm going to bed is one of my reading times, I, I t try to carve out... 30, 45 minutes before I go to sleep that I just read, um, put everything else away and read. And that I found when I was trying to take on more brain food, technical books or leadership mm -hmm. books or something else, I would tend to chew on that as I'd go to sleep. And then I'd start troubleshooting in my sleep and I'd wake up barely slept well. Maybe I'd ground through a problem, but it didn't work well. So I prefer yeah. brain candy um, when I sleep, and that's typically sci-fi, high fantasy. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, I love me some Lord of the Rings and all of those types of things. Um, but then I love, you know, but I feel like I have to account for time for brain food, um, where I get yeah. you know something that constantly pushes the the envelope. So when I uh, I have I for lunch, I typically, especially in this work from home atmosphere. I get away from the desk, I go upstairs, have my lunch, I sit at our counter. Um, I've got a book stand that sits up there, and I basically keep it where I try to read a chapter a day while I'm eating lunch. Um, got it. And so, like, my current brain food book is a really awesome one. I'm, I, I can see myself becoming an, an evangelist for it. It's uh, called Loon Shots. I actually, okay. uh, the book is upstairs, but I think this is the cover. Uh, I'll, I'll pump it out nice. there. Loon Shots by Safi Bacall, a friend of mine recommended it, um, and it's really it's a really cool engagement and a study on world-changing uh, technologies that were shot down before they ever became huh. what they became. Right. Um, so it, it and it, it uses that that alignment with a moonshot. Everybody is like pumping about uh, oh we need moonshots and these great moonshots to do these things. Well, these are technologies that massively changed the world but they were killed over and over again before they ever got their launch moment um, that sounds really cool yeah and he really analyzes why did they get killed 
and what ultimately became the successes. And one of the core things that I love in there is that, and it, I think it really applies to smart buildings, is uh, there are prototype or P-types and uh, S-types, which are strategy and organizational types of loon shots. Some things where some brand new cool technology comes along, world's changed, everything's amazing. But over time, the organization didn't embrace it. If the right strategy wasn't deployed, the right people weren't in place to, to see it and foster it and grow, it died. Um, and so both- So many parallels cool, there. Cool tech and organizational and stra organization and strategy has to come into alignment and come together. Love that. And that's a great place to end off. That just sums everything up that we talked about. Perfect. We'll put that link in the show notes for people. It sounds like a really if you're if you're doing FDD, if you're doing you know campus deployments, if you're doing yep. road operations center, that sounds like a great book. Yeah. To uh, to read. Yeah. Well, Terrell, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. I, again, we should probably come up with a good list of stuff for to do for round two, uh, and we'll <laughs> no put problem. that on the calendar for for later in the year or, or in early next year. So thanks again. For sure. Good deal. Take care. Thank you, James. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.